0: Yo guys, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Decks. This is a VENT podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with DJs and producers from the UK and beyond, discussing their musical journeys, their artistry, and most importantly, the person behind the decks. My special guest for this episode of Behind the Decks listeners is Matt Fallon. Matt is a guy I have known since uni when we went to Sussex together and was very much one of the local celeb student DJs on the Sussex Uni and Brighton circuit. Depression, relationships, stepping out of your comfort zone and work-life balance as a DJ are all on the menu for today's pod. Get yourself comfy and have a listen as I go Behind the Decks with Matt Fallon. (laughs) Matt, welcome to Behind the Decks, mate. Thanks so much for coming on and chatting to me. I don't think I've actually seen you face-to-face since that DJ set you did at Hobgoblin in Brighton when I was with Reese. I think at Pride. Was that four years ago now? Yeah, I think it actually has been that long, hasn't it? It's been, yeah, it would have been 2017, maybe. Yeah, definitely 2017, I think.
1: Yeah, appreciate you reaching out to me and inviting me to come on the show. It's, it's really cool, man. I've been um, following vent. Keeping an eye on it, especially on Instagram, just kind of seeing how it's grown. So I've been quite impressed, and it's uh, an honor to be invited onto the Behind the Decks
0: podcast. So thank you very much. No worries, man. I really appreciate your kind words. We've got a lot to get on with, and you've got a really interesting journey, especially your DJ stuff and your mental health. So, shall we just crack on? Let's start the pod with your DJ journey, Matt. So, I ask this to all my special guests on the series. So why don't you tell me and the listeners how your love affair with music began, maybe some of your favourite records growing up, music idols and inspirations, and then how you first got into DJing.
1: Man, where to start is the point. So I guess, to be honest, for me, the main listen- music I listened to when I was growing up was a kind of odd variety of 60s stuff, because my dad loved the 60s, so he'd always listen to Beatles and Rolling Stones and everything, the classics in the car, and kind of naughty pop music because my sister would always put that one in the car as well and i would just kind of follow her lead and i remember watching um do you remember tmf and the hits at all they were like the two music channels that were free on freeview i remember 2002 2003 <laughs> watching those channels quite a lot so that was kind of like my initial kind of journey of music i guess and then as i got a bit older God, I mean, we had the dubstep phase in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, which I don't think I would repeat, but I can't pretend that it didn't happen. And in terms of, like artists, you know, one, one of my favourite ever artists is Jamiroquai. So I remember specifically listening to him on a plane to Italy. I like listening to that like the greatest hits album. I actually distinctly remember listening to it for the first time and being like, "Oh my god, this is the best thing ever." So he's definitely one of the artists that has stayed with me and. Then it was only kind of when I, I got to kind of 17, 18, 19 that I started getting more into kind of club music. I think because kind of, although I wouldn't repeat the dubstep phase, I think that was what got me into dance music in particular. And then from that, that was the gateway. And then I was able to like move on. And nowadays, I like kind of like more house and techno and disco and all that sort of stuff. But again, the classics, I guess. And in terms of like starting DJing, I started, I think I was interested in it vaguely before I went to university. But then when I got to university, on the floor below me was this guy, Barney Shooter, Is actually his production name. And he, he produces and DJs quite a lot now. And he's doing quite well for himself. But just then he was starting out. But he had DJ decks and he himself produced music. So for me, I think I was in his room one time. I was like actually could you just show me how this all works because like, I might actually want to get something and he just gave me a kind of very basic tutorial about what I needed to do and then I decided to order my own Pioneer controller and then that arrived and that was first term of first year of university so early 2013 sorry late 2013 and from there it kind of begun really so yeah it's quite hard to find a coherent narrative to the music I listen to and then I end up going up into DJing but
0: that's kind of the the gist of it I guess. And when it came to your DJ name could you not be bothered to come up with an alias or did you just like your name as it was? At least there's no mystery I guess.
1: I think that my friends keep on pushing for me to call myself Fat Malon just like changing the F and the M around. I feel like if I ever had any major success and like properly like started going for it then maybe I'd come up with a stage name but I kind of feel like at a point where I do obviously some radio and stuff like that and held down like a residency in a pub and like DJ a few clubs. But I actually think that giving myself a DJ name at this point would be a bit pretentious. So I, I just can't be bothered to do
0: anything apart from my own name until there's a maybe a legitimate reason to. And as you began to put more and more time into DJing, Matt, how did your love for it grow? And did you manage to afford buying some music back then to give you a little crate box to use for those first few sets? Man, that is a good question.
1: You know, you like listening to music. It's even better when you can like throw different tunes that you like together and kind of create something new. And this sounds maybe a bit like, I don't know airy-fairy I guess but there's an element of like I do feel like there's an element of like when you're DJing it's almost like like a narrative to it it's like you're trying to like create a particular mood in like one section another mood in another section and then finish it off but you want the entire mix the entire structure to kind of work together as a coherent narrative and so I think I quite like that threading together of tunes that you like into this kind of big long piece and I do feel like unlike some other instruments like DJing still is a skill but I think the barrier to entry to it is lower than if you were maybe learning an instrument or something like that and you can start enjoying it a lot more quickly if you're learning to play piano I th- or learning to play guitar it takes a long time to really get the skill up to do that but you know even if you're a bit crap at DJing at the beginning and I was for a while you know you're still actually listening to tunes that you like like there's still some enjoyment even in the trying with it so I think that was initially why I kept on going and then when you get to the point where you start playing your first parties and nights I think definitely the house parties in Brighton were some of the funnest that's when there's like a real of like you do get like a real thrill from it so I think it was fun of like just doing it in my room and then
0: when I was able to like play at some parties and stuff like that that was when you of like wow this is like really exciting to do. Talk me through that first proper DJ set you ever did. Now, I'm right in saying it was a night you put on with your then flatmates at infamous Brighton nightclub Volks in December 2014. Now, if anyone from Sussex Uni is listening, they'll know what reputation that club had. What nerves or anxieties did you have in that first set? How did you feel in the moment and how do you think the set and overall night went as well for you? You know, it was a load of fun, that one, actually, because it was me and two of my
1: housemates. And Volks was basically doing, I think it was like you could book free weeknight with an NUS card or something like that. So it didn't cost anything. We sat up in the club. We got all our mates come down and it was just a a laugh, to be honest. Obviously, I was nervous. I think I played in like... A house party once or something like that. And I've played a lot in my room. Yeah, you know, it's hard to exactly remember how nervous I was, but I do remember just like practicing a load at the beginning. You know, the problem that I had actually at the beginning as well, it's easier now because I've got many more years worth of music but I remember at the beginning trying to like be like oh god I actually don't have all the tunes that I I want to play so like I think the selection was probably a bit eclectic I'll say that it was really great and you know I guess like being able to just like start off in front of your friends obviously you you want to impress them but at the same time it's not as much pressure as like some
0: other situations so I remember that one being quite good to be honest You then put on your own night at a much beloved club now gone in the Brighton club scene called 10 Below in January 2015. Tell me a bit about that night and how you stepped up from doing it from a group of people to putting on your own night by yourself. I imagine it was a lot more stress, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, a lot more stress. I don't know exactly why I did it. I think that so basically in our house, I ended up living with Barney Foot Shooter, and he wasn't the one that I put the night on with, but he would put on his own nights with one of our other housemates. So I originally did this event with the two housemates who weren't involved in that night, but it was a kind of a thing in the house. People just put on nights. So I think I just got to the point where I was like, oh, you know what? I'll just try doing this on my own. And yeah, it was an experience. I'll say that. I think that I learned a lot from it. I don't think I was super prepared. I was kind of, it was. thrown in at the deep end a little bit I managed to get a a rotor of DJs which was good and I did manage to get people through the door for a phase at least you know again it was like largely friends but it was good that it at least happened the problem that we had was that the club didn't really pay much attention to the night It, it was in tandem 10 below with the loft which was another club upstairs and they were had a night on themselves and they were putting all their energy into that and they yeah there were a lot of issues going on which they weren't attentive to so i remember when i first arrived there was only like one dj deck on the table and the rest of the system was missing and i had to try and find them to like sort that out which is, I mean, you know, it's pretty basic that you at least put the equipment in at the beginning of the night. That was quite frustrating. Then the queue buses on one of the decks didn't work, so people couldn't properly mix. And people began to... I had it booked until four, and people did begin to filter off, like, maybe, like, one or two. And so, you know, I still had a couple of DJs left to play, and the club came to me and said that they were going to close it an hour early because there weren't enough people in there, which is just, like... Just quite embarrassing, to be honest. And I, had, I think Barney Futsheeter was on last. And I had to tell him that he wasn't going to be playing, which was, you know, I think some people, there are a few people left. I think some people have stayed to watch him play. So that was a, just not good. And so, like, it was quite a bit sweet because it was really good to have put it on myself. And, like, there were elements of it that went well. But there was so much that went wrong. And like, you know, I think actually I lost money on doing the night as well in terms of like putting the deposit down. I don't think I made enough back. And I think I felt a little bit humiliated actually after they'd shut the club early, even though earlier on it hadn't been too bad. So it it was quite a bit sweet experience that.
0: What you just said there is an example, I guess, of when every DJ or producer has a bad set or a bad club night. What importantly, did you learn from this night, Matt, when it comes to you and your mental health?
1: It's a hard one. I don't think people cared as much as I thought they did. But for me, it felt like quite a public failure. I think kind of moving on from that, I realised that sometimes these things happen and makes you feel crap. And I felt just like a bit kind of like, oh, I don't even want to talk about it. But I think in the months kind of leading on from that, I had a more holistic Viewpoint of carb like you know what try and see the good with the bad that happened happened there. I think that the original aftermath was
0: quite tough, and it took me a little bit of time to work through that in my head. You played your first ever proper club night in inverted commas at Staple of the Brighton club scene, Concord Two, which is tucked away at the end of the Brighton Promenade. It's one of my favourite ever clubs. I eventually stopped getting ID'd at Concord too, because I went there so many times. How did that come about? And did you feel like that was another step up for you DJ wise and for your, I guess, fledgling career at the time?
1: Yeah, so that came about because of two things. So basically, this guy, Ben, who used to run Free Range Garage Night, which was quite a successful garage night in Brighton and Oxford, I think. He actually had played at the night I did at 10 Below. So I had like a bit of contact with him. I think he had played at one of my flatmates nights. And then some mutual friends of ours had a house party and I DJed at the house party and killed it at the house party. <laughs> and I think Ben thought that it was quite good. And he was like, yeah, you know, I do you want to like... It was a black butter records night at Concord 2. And free range had the second rim for the entire night, and he, so he was like, "Yeah, you know what? Like, would you like to go and be a part of the free range hosting of room two at Concord?" And I was like, "Yeah, definitely." I think that felt like going to Concord and like actually playing a proper club. That's when you kind of feel like, "Okay, yeah, I'm a DJ. I can actually do this stuff." But at the same time, like I was still quite early on. Like I was still quite rough around the edges. So looking at the actual set I did looking back I think I could have done a lot lot better than I did but you know I think I did all right and it was a really really fun night and like just very cool to be a bill with people who are actually professional DJs I think like Predator and someone else was playing that night as well so in room
0: one obviously but that was how it came about I remember that night because I was there and I saw Predator and I think my new Leng might have been playing as well and it was a pretty mad set to be fair Yeah, it was. It was, I think, Applebottom as well. After your second year, you studied for a year abroad in Amsterdam, which we'll discuss a bit later. But after you came back, you and your friend George had the opportunity to have your own radio show on Platform B in Brighton. Just tell me a bit about how that came about and and how important a moment was that for your career?
1: Yeah, so that came about, to us, I'm going to be frank, with a lot of the music and DJing stuff that I've done, I probably wouldn't have got it without George because George is far more proactive than I am so for example with the radio show because he DJs a bit and I think he had seen the advert from Platform B and they were saying oh yeah looking for people aged 16 to 25 to do shows on this new radio station and George came to me as like do you fancy doing it and I was like or applying for it I was like yeah, that sounds good. So then we came together and we made our application, which I think involved like some sort of five minute video or something saying what we wanted to do with the show. And I think we had to like write some stuff. We sent it in and they were interested. So then me and George did that show together. So we started it in, I think, We applied in December 2016, started in April 2017. George left Brighton in September 2017. So then we did it together for about six months and then I continued it solo for about another year. But that was great fun because that was just nice to be able to just have like one hour, I think it was every two weeks, in which I'd just go in and play tunes that I wanted to play. It was really fun doing it with George. I did miss him when he left, but I still quite
0: enjoyed doing it on my own as well. It was after this, you also got your first weekly residence at Brighton pub slash bar, or club as I call them, the Hobgoblin. It was also a period where you were having to do longer sets, you know, three to five hours sometimes. How did this challenge you to improve your DJing skills, both technically and how to read a room and crowd management? Doing the sets, at the
1: Hobgoblin were what made me confident as a DJ. To be honest, all those club nights I I say all those club nights like it wasn't loads, but like you know some of the club nights I'd done before were fine. But you know it, it was very much like regimented, practiced. You know, and I kind of knew what was going to be the next tune and all that sort of stuff. Doing five hour sets at the Hobgoblin, yeah. I mean, obviously you can't practice five hours of material every week or so. So it meant that. I got better because I guess pure time that's put into it but it meant that I had to improvise and so I was improving my skills and being able to kind of go into one tune and have a range you know in my head I suddenly become far more able to have a range of different options to then throw in. I think also the thing that was helpful is that it made me realise that it doesn't always have to be perfect. I think I was sometimes hemmed in by this idea that like, you know, especially like with the clubs, and all that sort of stuff, when I was practicing so much, I was kind of like, every single thing has to be perfect. And if it goes wrong, then you're a bad DJ and like you've you know, why are you doing it? Whereas at the Hobgoblin, I just kind of realised that that's a part of it. And most of the time if it hasn't gone as planned, when you're trying to do a transition or something like that, then I realized that most people don't notice, you know, unless you really kind of car crash it on every single thing. Like it's not going to matter if you put it in like two bars too late, which I think honestly it took me until then to realize. So I think it was having to do that every week for five hours. It just made me more appreciative of the fact that things go wrong. Sometimes you just deal with that and people don't notice so much. And it made me much better to be able to kind of like, Yeah, I got to know my tracks, so I just was able to understand which tunes fitted with what much better than I had done previously.
0: After you graduated university, you moved to London, where you've done a few radio shows, including one on Music Box Radio, but you also had to manage DJing alongside a full-time job. I tried to break down the myth of the superstar DJ on Behind the Decks a lot, Matt, as you can imagine. What are the realities of managing DJing and working full-time that people might not see and how have they manifested in your experience?
1: It's hard. I take my hats off to people who really try and forge a path down both. But even just for me, in the end, I stayed with just the radio show rather than pursuing to do sets on the weekend because I wanted my weekends free. To be honest, I kind of thought to myself like, "Oh, if I do DJing on the weekend as well, then you know, I'll have like no time to." see my friends so in some ways when I started working full-time it it took a bit of a back burner but because we had the show and that was every two weeks it did mean that you know I, I was still had to find a load of new tracks every two weeks and go into a studio and record a show and do a mix every two weeks as well and I had to set aside time to do that so you know on the weekends beforehand I would have in my mind sometimes If it's be a Sunday afternoon I'd be like okay like I need to do like a proper like dive and research like this this afternoon so that I can find the teams to play on this show and also you know I, I remember one time being at work and I think it was a slow afternoon it kind of seeped in every now and again and you know I think it was like a couple of hours before finish I was like you know what, I might as well just like dive in and just try and find some teams for this radio show because actually don't have enough the other way around as well work could sometimes seep into DJing so I remember like one time when we had a show and I left work and went to a Starbucks near where we were recording just so I could be nearby but up until about 10 minutes before we started recording I was working on a some sort of press release or paper that had to be out for the next day and it's quite hard even with just a show it was quite hard sometimes to balance work and the music and that's me doing it almost on the side and as a hobby as
0: well I guess rather than really delving into it and taking it super seriously like some. And why do you think it's important that we break this myth down in the DJing community?
1: Because I think that obviously mental health amongst musicians and DJs can be an issue particularly for people who do it more frequently than I do I think that for example what I was saying about not really pursuing to do like sets on weekends stuff like that because I wouldn't be able to see my friends like, I was thinking in that case about my mental health I thought to myself like, I don't want this enough for me to not get the kind of relief and like joy I get from seeing my mates just to continue doing this I was kind of like I needed time for both and I think that people who work full-time and are DJing full-time on the weekends as well, I actually think it it can be quite hard because you don't get to see people maybe as often as you would like because you're on on a different schedule completely to what your friends might be. So I think it's important because I think that it's important to see that it actually balancing the two is hard if you want to try and like have
0: your kind of time to yourself and social life as well and what impact does DJing itself have on your mental health do you think mate is it a release is it escapism maybe something cathartic or something completely different you know you told me off air how much creativity you derive from DJing is that important for you
1: yeah so DJing for me it is a kind of creative outlet like which For me, I'm dyspraxic, so I don't have very good hand-eye coordination. So unfortunately, a lot of creative things require that. So I I was never very good at art because I can't draw very well. Instruments, I did learn a little bit of piano, but I don't think I enjoyed it so much because I found it so hard to learn. And I actually did learn a bit of singing, which doesn't require that. But again, the DJing kind of followed this trend. Again, you do need some hand-eye coordination, but it was easier and so for me it is the kind of creative outlet that works for me with that in mind and it's definitely like a bit of a release like it is at the moment I'm not taking it super seriously so it's not dominating my life it's something that I can turn to when I'm a bit stressed out or like I'm kind of want to just have like a bit of fun or I'm a bit bored so in terms of effect on my mental health like it's definitely like a boom being able to like have that skill. And I, th- I think for some people who are doing it more seriously, it ends up being a bit of a double edged sword. But for me, it, it's not at that point because it is purely kind of recreational as much as you know, I've got the radio shows and all that
0: sort of stuff. And what does the future hold for DJ Matt Fallon and your career? Do you think you told me about a potential opportunity at Threads, which was a station hosted by Tottenham Club The Cause. I know COVID's probably impacted a lot of things, but what can you tell me here?
1: Yeah, so that I got in tandem with George, who I've done all the radio shows with so far, and actually a couple of people that he's friends with who DJ. And so there's kind of a rotor of about four of us. So we actually now do have all together a show on Threads, which is going to be every two months. So it's not Super often, but we, yeah, the first one it, it's quite a good slot. It's Friday night from midnight to two a.m. So I guess that's Saturday morning technically, but it's, it's the party slot, and they're all doing a bit of radio elsewhere as well. So I'm going to be taking on the first show, which is December the 11th. If anyone wants to tune in, and So that's really nice because Threads is a good station to be on. Like, you know, it causes a really great club. Threads is kind of very up and coming in terms of the internet radio scene. So I feel quite privileged to be able to play on it. In terms of what it holds, I think that, you know, in terms of pure DJing, I'm gonna see how it goes. I'm not gonna absolutely like push for it, but if I got opportunities from anything that I was doing, for sure I would take them because why not really? and quite exciting. But at the moment, it's still on the side. What I am trying to do, actually, though, is because I'm between jobs at the moment. So I've got a bit of time on my hands. So I'm learning a little bit of music production to see if I can like make any tunes, which I may not be able to do. But not to advertise for Skillshare, but I went on Skillshare and like found some courses which like really made it make sense to me, because I think I'd always wanted to delve into it beforehand. I never truly understood it, whereas now I'm kind of understanding it. So I might like try and make a couple of tracks and see if they could potentially go anywhere. And I want to kind of, if I have the time, try and pursue that route a
0: little bit more.
1: So I've got the show, but I'm going to try a bit of music production
0: and I guess I'll just see where that leads, essentially. DJing for as long as you have now, Matt, what has it taught you about yourself, do you think? And what have you learned?
1: Yeah, that is a very, very. Good question because it has been a long time, about like seven years, which is mad actually thinking about it now. <sighs> in terms of what it's taught me about myself, I guess that I don't think I ever really, to us, if I if was, when I started it, I think, you know, I thought it'd be nice to like play in clubs and like do radio and hold a residency somewhere. This is kind of some small fry stuff, but I actually don't think I considered the fact to get out the bedroom. So it showed me that I can at least kind of like learn and apply myself to something new and learn a new skill and become good at it and you know i guess like also doing like parties and like playing at the pub and doing all the nights it can be quite pressurized so i think it showed me that i can actually like do these kind of tasks under pressure and like keep the room going and also you know to deal with criticism because i'm not gonna lie people get emotional about their music or uh, in if that makes sense like you'd get some Pretty cutting comments sometimes from people, even at the Hobgoblin. So I developed a thick skin. I was just kind of like, well, yeah, you know what? Like, you just have a different music
0: taste to me. Everyone else seems to be enjoying it. So it's okay. But yeah, I'd say that's kind of what it taught me. And just finally, Matt, on this topic, for anyone wanting to get into producing or making music or DJing, what message or advice would you give them from your experience?
1: I would say do it if you really want to. I think that understandably it's not nowhere near as expensive as it was back in the day but there is still a monetary barrier to entry you know i think my first set of decks were about 350 pounds which was a good investment considering how much i used them but there was that monetary barrier to entry and so i do understand if people don't have a ton of money and don't have the equipment then it might be tough to be like to try and justify it But I would say that if you have had it on your mind for a while, if it's not like just a passing fancy, if it's something which you've had in your mind for, say, at least like half a year, a year or something like that, where you've been like, I really want to try this, it might be worth taking the plunge. And I think that when you get it, you just have to be a bit patient learning it. But honestly especially with DJing at the beginning there are still a lot of tools to help you like you know you you shouldn't really be using like the sync button in like in an actual set but if you're just starting out and you're trying to learn the basics of just like putting two tracks together there are tools to help you kind of almost the the, what's the word the stabilizers bicycle stabilizers I was trying to to get that that's like yeah the training wheels and you can like use those to to help yourself so even if it seems a bit daunting You can get into it straight away if you take the plunge with DJing in particular.
0: We've talked DJ Matt Fallon. Let's go behind the decks and talk about your own journey, Matt, in a bit more detail. So I ask all my guests this question first. Why don't you tell me about your early life, your childhood, maybe your teenage years? And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Matt we meet here? I
1: mean, basically, I, you know, I started off going to school in Hampstead called Dempter House. I was there for about three years. But to be honest, even there, I remember being anxious. It was like quite a strict environment. The teachers really were not very nice. They just piled you on with work. And it's crazy to say that as a four year old. But I remember like being like super anxious about school, like being like really kind of like not wanting to be there, not feeling like I could do any of the work. I remember you had like your teacher for a year and so I remember like my teacher in like the second year that I had there just being like not very nice and I was constantly afraid to like go to school. I mean those weren't particularly happy memories to be honest. Then I moved to King Alfred which is a school in kind of Golders Green which was a, a much better experience a lot more chilled out and everyone was a lot nicer so that was that was good and I think for few years after I moved there I was quite content really. I think when I was a teenager things became a lot more difficult. I just remember going to secondary school and suddenly like really being anxious like really struggling with anxiety like new people were coming in you know everyone suddenly like jostling for position trying to like find their social group social status. I remember being like super anxious and like I remember I think I thought everyone was like speaking behind my back and stuff like that. Funnily enough, that year, both me and my mum became ill with like chronic fatigue syndrome. So I was off school for a bit as well. But I actually think I remember in some ways being glad at that point that I didn't have to go in because it made me so anxious. Actually, after I came back from school from that chronic fatigue syndrome, which yeah, you know, it was lucky me and my mum recovered because not everyone does. But I was able to get back to school later in that school year. And when I came back, everyone was very nice. And I think that my anxiety lessened. But to be honest, my teenage years were just a, a difficult time. A few years later, my mental health started to get worse again. I started to kind of get a bit depressed. I remember I was on antidepressants one year, St. John's wort. Because I just found, I think I just found the social situation and the social pressure very difficult. And I was very lucky all the way through my teenage years. I had a counsellor from when I was twelve to twelve or thirteen to when I was eighteen, and that was really helpful because that helped me kind of talk through my feelings and work through as a process. But yeah, I I really struggled in my teenage years to be honest, and you know had a lot of depressive episodes. And, you know, I wouldn't say it was perfect, but it only
0: got better after I left school. During this period, were you self-aware that you were experiencing depression or were you just completely winging it, so to speak, about your education on your own mental health? I think I knew that I was experiencing depression
1: for sure. And some people don't. But, you know, I was very aware that there was just something in my head because I would go through phases of being fine and then I'd get to like a turning point where suddenly like I would just be depressed I couldn't pull myself out of it and I knew that there was just something in my head just not going right it's funny looking at how I was at the beginning of secondary school it's only recently that I realized that I had anxiety at that point I don't think I actually realized exactly what that was it's weird because I was very able to identify my depression when it kind of started but I think the anxiety itself, I didn't, looking back, I don't think I actually
0: completely understood what that was. And during this period, what would you say were some of the more difficult moments you had? And then conversely, what were some of the perhaps positive breakthroughs you had that you can share with the listeners? It's hard to
1: pinpoint one difficult moment because it was just all quite difficult. And there wasn't really a particular thing which I remember as being like, this was awful. This like absolutely ruined me. I think the thing that was tough, I think the depression kind of caused me to withdraw into myself at times. And yeah, I think that it probably affected my friendships like during school, you know, people were were friends with me and like did like me. But I think, you know, I'd go through phases of maybe not being fully myself. And, you know, I think people in teenage years switch between people quite quickly. And so if I wasn't quite there, I think, you know, suddenly I wouldn't Maybe it wouldn't be invited to something. It would be stuff like that, being like feeling like my depression was influencing how my friends saw me and being powerless to stop it. And then the cycle continued. At the same time, I don't think I really told any of my friends, apart from maybe one, that I was depressed. But I think the difficulty for me was that I felt that it was pushing people away because of people were pu-
0: being pushed away. I was getting more depressed and there'd be times I was like, oh, well, this is just it. You said to me that your mental health only really began to get better after you left school. Do you think in that way that school was impacting it, either the environment or that horrific exam cycle we were all thrust through kicking and screaming? That is a, a good question.
1: I think that it was for sure the environment and the social pressure I went to a very small school with about 48 people in our year. And that has its blessings and its curses. The thing that's really nice now is that we all went through that together. I'm really good friends with all of them now. And, you know, we all still meet up and do stuff all the time, which is amazing. I know a lot of people don't have that with their friends in school. At the time, I think it meant that there was no escaping particular social dynamics. And definitely, I think in terms of the, Jostling for status, I, I was definitely at the bottom. I wasn't taken very seriously. And I think that was tough because there was no escape from it. And when you're a teenager and that's all you know, that kind of comes to define you a little bit. So it was only really when I left school, and I think people started to take me a bit more seriously. And I didn't feel like my social status was at the bottom of the heap that I think that changed.
0: Let's fast forward to university now. When you arrived, did you feel in a good place about your mental health? And did you adjust to that university life fairly quickly or not? Again, a good question. I had a year off. So I had a gap year before university.
1: and I think that did a lot for my confidence. You know, I went to South America to do a bit of traveling, met a lot of people there. I went to the States and volunteered on the Obama re-election campaign where I was like going around and registering people to vote and knocking a lot of doors and that made me kind of come out of myself and what's the word become a bit more confident and kind of understand how to improve my social skills and maybe understand how to interact with people. So by the time I got to university I had a lot more confidence in myself than when I had left school. That being said I do remember my first weeks at university being tough. I, you know, I wasn't really sure like who my friends were. Again, trying to like find a place to belong, really, and like at that point, I think I felt like I was struggling to do so, and I wasn't sure whether I actually wanted to. I you know I don't know if it was fully serious about maybe wanting to drop out and go somewhere else but I think I actually had in my mind like oh I'm not sure if I want to be here like you know I'm not sure like if I've got any friends here I'm not sure if I enjoy it like I don't know if I, I like the work after about six seven weeks I think that that stopped and I think I was freaking out a little bit about the change but I also began to find my people and like people that I wanted to be with and the rest of my mental health in first year was actually pretty good and I had a really good time in first year But definitely the initial bit was
0: tough, even though I had come into it with more confidence than I had when I left school. You told me off-air, it was in your second year of uni, that you had a flare-up with your depression. Until that point, was university something you were enjoying? And then if you could just tell me a bit about that flare-up and what happened. I think it took me by
1: surprise. I think I'd got to a point where the first year'd been fine. I was kind of like, oh look at me, like, you know, I, I'm not the person I was anymore. Like I'm got friends, like, you know, people take me seriously. I done okay in my grades and all that sort of stuff. I had a really good summer and then I came back to university and it's hard to pinpoint exactly why it happened, but I just remember going in and I suddenly felt like it was more serious, the work was more intense. I think my friend group shrank a little bit because I didn't have as much time for everybody. I think that freaked me out. The fact that my friend group was shrinking because I was kind of like, oh, well, it was fine last year. Why is it now being difficult this year? And then I began to wonder, like, oh, is it me? Like, is it me kind of going back to how I was as a teenager at school? And... I think, again, there's that cycle of then beginning to see things in people where it's like, oh, well, you know, like, I'm not going to be invited to that. They probably don't want me. And maybe kind of me pushing people away a tiny bit. At the same time, people are just wrapped up in their own lives. And it's probably not as deep as I thought it was. But I started to get into a cycle of like, oh, well, I'm depressed. So, like, I can't, you know, I'm not going to be myself around people. People aren't going to want to see me not seeing people friendship degrades you get more depressed it's kind of the cycle and yeah i think i just felt like i'd screwed up all my good work from first year if i'm honest and that was quite tough and i I think probably like i was still going out a bit too much and stuff like that and wasn't allowing myself recovery time for my own head The going out was probably to compensate and make me feel like i was still doing all right but i wasn't and that took a while to overcome. It was only in the spring of that year that I started to, uh, of that second year. So yeah, early 2015, I guess, that I started to recover a little bit. And I think there was a little bit of the change of the seasons that helped. I think also started making some good friends on my course and eventually went on a big trip to Vietnam, which was really fun. And I remember that and you know, made some really good friends from that trip. And I remember I'd been getting better and that kind of was a catalyst for me Kind of going back and being like, oh, I'm OK again. And I'm not sure exactly why, but I think it was just being able to, like, again, meet some new people. And actually a lot of the depression would come down to me doubting myself socially. So I was in a situation where I made new friends and actually got on with people and seemed to be be liked, it made me feel better. I think it also eventually gave me the confidence that I was someone that could be liked, I guess. So the more that happened, the less I would sink back into those old ways of thinking.
0: We referenced it a bit earlier, but let's talk about your year abroad now, because your university degree was fairly long. Why did you decide to do this year abroad to Amsterdam? And what did you learn about yourself while you were there, apart from the types of substances legally available. I understand the academic structure was a lot different to Sussex. It's funny thinking about why I decided to go,
1: because I almost don't know. I just always did. I remember from literally the first term of my first year, which was when you kind of had the first information meetings about doing a year abroad. I was there and I was like, yeah, I definitely want to go do a year abroad, like live elsewhere. And Amsterdam just seemed like a really great, option so I can't pinpoint exactly where I wanted to go I just did and it was a very important year Amsterdam because again I was kind of being thrown into a new environment and meeting new people and having to kind of start again and I was able to make success of it and I think by the time I'd done that in Amsterdam I'd made a new start with so many different people that I started to kind of just think to myself like okay well like I need to stop doubting myself socially so because like I'm obviously all right I, I you know uh, that was I think helpful about going to Amsterdam and being thrust into that new situation and like still being able to like make friends and all that sort of stuff academically it was very different to Sussex where like at Sussex you did all your often like a lot of your assessments at the end of term so you could piss about a little bit it, it, to be honest in in the middle of the year so it meant that I would you know, go out and like not really work and not do too much for most of the year and then cram it all in at the end, which was a risky strategy and paid off to differing levels in the first two years. So I was quite lucky to get through with kind of 2-1 by the end of the second year. In AMSAM, if you missed more than one lecture, you got kicked off the course and you've got assignments to do every single week. So I had to work. There's no option. And originally that was quite intense and quite tough. But I think after a while I realised like, oh, I can work and still have fun. And it sounds weird, but I always thought that I couldn't do that. I thought it was only you can have fun or you can only work. But I was like, oh, actually, no, I can bang out this essay in the middle of the day and then like just go see someone in the evening. And that was quite important because it made me a lot more disciplined and gave me in some ways a a better work-life balance. Even though I was working more, I think that I just wasn't working enough previously. And so that was quite vital, I think, for actually getting better grades when I came back for my final year and doing my master's and also being able to balance that with
0: my social life as well. I realised that, you know, it, it was possible. Do you think looking back, this step out of your comfort zone was important to you in instilling that discipline in you for the rest of your degree? And I guess, as well as that, into adult life. It was vital, to be honest. Maybe it would have happened anyway, but sometimes
1: these things do just happen. You know, there are different possibilities. It may well have happened at some other point down the line if I'd not gone. But I mean, for sure, for me, I look back and it was vital for that step out of my comfort zone to actually developing me as a person and becoming just a bit more capable i would say is probably yeah how i'd describe it i think it would have taken me i either wouldn't have got there or it would have taken me a lot longer if i hadn't been really forced to actually work a bit harder
0: after all this you decided to keep the university dream going even longer and do a masters tell me about the decision behind that and how your mental health was at this period of your life
1: my mental health at this period of my life was good. I decided to do a master's because I was living with two of our mutual friends, Ollie and Reese, And you know, it was like that house was just like the best place to live. I had such a good time living with them in first year. And they were both staying on to do a second year. So not a second year, a well, second year in the house, but their integrated master's final year for physics. So a lot of things seemed to align because I was like, well, I can still live with these guys. and I really like living with them. I'd been thinking about going back up to London to do the Masters, but the Masters there was going to be a lot more expensive. The Masters in Sussex was going to be cheaper. And I was kind of like, well, you know, I know the university. I get to live with these guys, and it's all good. And at the same time, I'd recently started DJing at the Hobgoblin. I'd also started the radio show, and I was kind of like, well, it would be a shame to curtail these, and like it would be good to like do this a little bit more as well in, you know, at the pub. And do the radio show and get this experience. So a lot of things kind of came together where obviously I was interested in my master's. I did migration and global development, but there are a lot of external factors that kind of came together to mean that I stayed at Sussex to to do it. I think I probably wanted one more year before I entered the world of work as well. But it was definitely that time was a very good period for my mental health. Everything after the four years from Amsterdam up until this year were a very good run.
0: Let's fast forward all the way to 2020 now, this horrendous year we are living through. It was this year that you had a really quite destructive breakup, which gave you a lot of mental health challenges. We won't talk about the relationship itself, but talk me through the aftermath of it, if you could, and how that impacted your depression and your mental health. This year has been tough. I mean, this this year I've had something to cry about, I'll say that.
1: Yeah, it was really tough. I mean, you know, it it was... So we broke up in February. It was very destructive. And just after that, the pandemic hit and lockdown hit. And it took me a long time to process everything. The one mental health boon and Carbac, the thing that was good, was that I actually... My flat. I think we would have had a good time, me and my flatmate on the boat, but she decided to move home for it. I decided I wasn't going to be on my own on the boat in the circumstances that I was. I moved in with some four friends who were were in a house in Walthamstow and stayed in their living room. And so I was very lucky to be surrounded by friends and have a garden, which a lot of people didn't. So that at least eased some of the, the pain. But for me, it was an element of i felt all aspects of a lot of aspects of my identity had been stripped away even like three months before say it's march even three months before that i'd been someone who had you know was in a a relationship which i i really loved and really enjoyed i was going to work every day and going to to the office i had my radio show that i did with george every two weeks and you just have this routine and you have like always Suddenly three months later, I'm no longer in the relationship. It's got the gone. And not only has that happened, but it's been incredibly destructive. And that's not there anymore. The, you know, I, I'm working from home and like, it sounds weird, but even the act of going into the office, that was almost an element of, you know, what I did. And that felt quite harsh. I, I was glad to be living with friends, but I wasn't in the home which I'd lived in for a year, year and a half can't go into the radio station, so I can't do the radio. And it just felt like everything fell away at once. And without me knowing it, I pent up a lot of it kind of inside. You know, I I, I was very upset, really struggled for the first few months. I would cry, like, pretty often. But the worst part came in summer. It was only in summer that I think that we eventually we kind of came out of lockdown and there was kind of like this excitement and we ha- had like some fun times with like friends but there were other things happened my uncle died at the end of May which was also really difficult because I you know I, I can't say I was super super close to him but he had been a big fixture in my life and like you know I really cared about him so that was something else that happened which again knocked me back and then in July and August I, I had my last contact with my ex which I think kind of put some real finality on it And I think finally kind of late July, early August, all this pent up emotion that I had kind of felt inside. I'd, you know, constantly just been feeling just like sad, down, upset, like every day, like just what's the point in in this really? And it finally just started coming through for like three weeks. I think pretty much every day or every other day for three weeks, I would get up at the end of July, early August. I would get up, go for a walk and cry and then come back and you know and that is off a little bit towards like mid-August but it got to a point where that point had been about six months since we would broken up and I was like okay I'm still like just like devastated and like incredibly upset I was like you know I might actually be depressed again at this point like it's quite possible I remember speaking to my flatmate about it so that was the point where I decided that was like you know I think I just need to get a counsellor and like talk through all this stuff because as I said there's just a lot to unpack I I think I think the really difficult thing about lockdown as well was that you know in difficult circumstances when you have a breakup you often have coping mechanisms which involve just like going out and seeing friends and doing things and taking your mind off it and that took all the coping mechanisms away as well the entire process it's it's difficult you know, very difficult. I think also another aspect was I, I left my job in July, which I think, you know, I, I really loved it, but I think I needed to look for something else. Else at that point, but also then suddenly being unemployed and having all that time on your hands, that's also quite difficult. And you're also kind of like, well, that job was a part of my identity too. So yeah, a, quite a long answer,
0: but it, yeah, it's it's been a tough year. I'll say that. And just on the point about your counsellor, Matt. How has your counsellor helped you with your mental health and getting closure on the post-breakup period and, I guess, getting to a better place with your mental health more generally?
1: It's helped in the fact that it just allows me an outlet every week to, not to pun on the title of your organisation, but to vent. But it does allow, allow you a space to vent and just kind of get things out of your system a little bit. And also to kind of work through... I know that there was quite a bit going under the surface that I didn't completely understand and didn't completely know about. So I think it's been useful to go and kind of get some understanding of what those things are, which I, I can't even quite understand myself and have that reflected back to me. And it has really improved my mental health over the past couple of months I, i'm in a much better place than i was
0: you alluded to it a little bit there in some of your previous answers matt but you are recording and we are recording this pod whilst you are sat in your narrowboat in homerton can you tell the listeners about what made you decide to move on to a narrowboat and live on a narrowboat as it's not something that everyone decides to do it's a very good question freddie <laughs> It was essentially
1: a way to get somewhere in London and I guess to an extent property without going through the expense of buying a flat. So that was the rationale behind it. Whether it's actually paid off it, it is another question. You know, we, we still have to, we've got a mooring, we still have to pay for the mooring and there are a lot of other costs for boats such as like deals and stuff like that. Whether it's done what, you know it was intended to do I don't I can't I can't say for sure but the rationale was that it would be kind of
0: cheap property essentially. Given all you've been through Matt what do you think you would say to the 13 or 14 year old Matt who was struggling back then?
1: I think I would say it gets better and probably believe in yourself more. I don't even know if those two things would have helped it's hard to know what would have helped me at those at that stage but
0: i think those are the two things that come to mind our final topic of conversation matt and it's one i try and have with all my special guests which is a general natter about our mental health so firstly and you can include circumstances or exclude them especially given what we're about to go through in the next couple of weeks a time of recording how would you say your mental health is at the moment mate
1: It's better than it has been. It's still a bit up and down, but I'm a bit more myself, a bit more. I think, you know, say three months ago, I'd wake up every morning and I'd just be feeling like sad and just like crap from the moment I wake up. Like that doesn't happen anymore. And it's still tough. I think I'm pretty sick of this year, to be honest. I am looking forward to a moment where things seem to be kind of coming together for me a little bit more but I'm more able to kind of be happy at times and be myself a bit more.
0: You've mentioned anxiety and depression previously, Matt, but if you felt comfortable saying, just for clarity, what mental health issues or conditions, if any, do you live with and how do they affect you in your day-to-day life? It's a good question because I I wouldn't say that I live with
1: any, but I, I do occasionally with depression, like it's not something that pops up often enough nowadays that, I would say that it's there all the time, but for sure it's been a feature of my life. It has shaped a number of years for me. So if I was going to say I live with anything, then it would be that. But I think that my mental health journey doesn't quite fit into that
0: framework as such. And what things do you find in life that trigger Your mental health. So it could be things people might say, sounds, sensations, environments. You know, what can you tell me here?
1: So I think that nowadays I don't have as many fluctuations in my mental health. But I think that what this year has taught me is that feeling like I have no control over what's happening to me and not being able to like find a way out of a particular predicament I'm in or circumstances that I find difficult and that can be a trigger
0: for getting depressed or not being in a good place. And what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? You know, Which ones have you found that have worked and maybe which ones you've tried but haven't? I think that, and
1: this is one really good thing that I think my mum has always instilled in me, reward yourself after you do something difficult or do some sort of challenge you know but one thing which my mum always has said to me over the years is like if I've gone and done like an exam or like maybe I've been through a a tough moment or like something's happened she's been like you know go on and like go meet a friend for a drink now like you know you've earned it it'll make you feel better and definitely being able to like you know I think if something tough happens being able to kind of reward yourself and be like you know what no I deserve to be able to go for a drink this evening or go and do this or like go and do something I enjoy I think that that's quite probably one
0: of the main ways that I do it is is finding a moment to reward myself. And how do you support friends in your own social group who may have mental health issues themselves or just going through a poor period of mental health whether that be men or women?
1: I think that for me you know I like to just check in on people make sure that just see what's going on not putting too much pressure on it just being like well you know like how are you feeling like is there any change one thing I found that's really important is to strike a balance of kind of optimism and realism because you know often people do need to know like you know, don't worry, like, this can get better. And, like, you know, you have these options and, like, there's a way to, like, get through this. But you also need to acknowledge that, no, this situation is crap. I'm really sorry that this is happening to you. And so I think it's important to provide an optimistic viewpoint because there often is an optimistic viewpoint to things. But while acknowledging that people are allowed to feel the way they're feeling at at that point in time and that it's completely normal and understandable.
0: Toxic masculinity is a big topic on this podcast, Matt. Especially when it comes to men and male guests I have, and it's one we try and break down a lot. What would you define as toxic masculinity, and what examples of it have you experienced in your life that you can share with the listeners? It's a really good question.
1: It's a very hard thing to define because I think we can probably, like you know, we all have a feeling of like what it is. But the best definition I can give it, and this isn't you know necessarily the be all and end all but I define toxic masculinity as the use of aggression to pursue masculine ideals to the detriment of others because that is often what a lot of it can be categorized under because it takes a lot of different forms but it often is the pursuit a, a real pursuit of like masculine trying to be masculine or to feel masculine or to do masculine things in a way that impacts other people negatively in terms of examples that I have encountered I'm very lucky to have a group of friends that I I would say aren't toxic people who support you know in terms of guys people who support each other who talk about their feelings who are are kind to each other and not everyone has that I don't encounter it myself much I don't think in my day-to-day but for sure, there there are times where I think in terms of stuff which I've encountered with people, some people who I'd say have toxic elements about them, it takes the form of trying to subtly kind of put people down. Like I've definitely been in conversations with people where they're trying to maybe like belittle you a little bit or try and kind of make you feel a bit smaller than you are, almost kind of like boost their own status. And... To us, I, you know, it doesn't bother me at all nowadays. Like it probably would have done when I was younger. But nowadays like I, I'm just kind of like, well, you know, like be like that, then that's fine. But that's probably the most kind of relevant example I can,
0: I can think of. I also talk a lot about this idea of positive masculinity, Matt, and hopefully with a few more pods and a few more years, this will just be described as masculinity and toxic masculinity will be something in the minority. How would you define positive masculinity and what qualities do you think a man should exude to be described as being positively masculine? You know, some guests have said it's self-confidence. Some guests have said it's emotional intelligence, self-awareness. What would you describe it as?
1: I would definitely say self-awareness, humility, because I think that pride is a big part of when there's toxic masculinity, when people, I guess we know what pride is. But positive masculinity is definitely having some humility. An ability to listen to others, to empathize with other people, because obviously there's a stereotype of masculinity that you're kind of, which isn't really true. I think for most guys that I know that like, oh, yeah, men are just out for themselves. They don't care about other people. So positive masculinity is definitely listening to and empathizing with other people, no matter whether
0: they're from your background or not. Why do you think historically men have struggled to express how they're feeling about their mental health or feelings in general? Has society taught us that it's not okay for us to show vulnerability or have we as men done it to ourselves?
1: I mean, it's probably a bit of both, isn't it? It's hard to know where the individual level begins and society begins and which way the site, You know, I guess it's the chicken and the egg situation, isn't it? I think that we have to see that men can be Victims of stuff which is occurring on a societal level. I think there is an element of guys, maybe do try and like hold stuff in anyway to be like the big, strong man and like in traditional masculine sense of the word, being able to like take on whatever and like deal with it. Mm. That's kind of a, a typical idea of like masculine strength. So I think that mm. there was probably always an element of that before maybe more widespread societal pressures. But I think men also respond to
0: the societal expectations that are placed on them. And just finally, mate, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to?
1: That is a, a very, very good question. I actually think that we're on a pretty good track at the moment with what we are doing. I mean, I think even in the last 10 years, there has been a huge focus on, you know, a huge kind of increasing focus on men's mental health. And, you know, it's okay to be open and vulnerable and to speak about difficulties that you're having. I don't think that was there previously, and I do think it's having an effect. I do tend to think that our for older generations maybe it's different, but at least amongst our younger generation, I do feel like, with a few exceptions, men tend to be a lot more open and willing to show vulnerability than maybe it would have been in the past. So I think kind of continuing to yeah, I guess do a bit what you're doing, you know, like raise awareness. Let people feel like it's okay to let things out, and that it's the right thing to do, and that it actually is quite—you know—if we're defining masculinity, often revolves around strength, and it's quite being open and vulnerable is quite strong and courageous thing to do. To be honest, the typical masculine ideals can be very easily reframed to fit the idea of it being normal to be open and to speak
0: through your feelings. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of Behind the Decks. I want to say a big thank you to Matt for being my special guest for this episode and letting me go behind the decks with him. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it, perhaps. Or if you're feeling generous, please write us a review and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and help us get up the algorithms. Stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Decks and remember, it's always okay to vent.